All right, today we're going to go to Exodus chapter 5. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, kind of right in the middle of a discussion. And today we're going to talk about our favorite topic, hard work. Isn't that a good topic? To jump right in, new week, let's talk about... No, we're actually not talking about hard work. We're talking about harder work. Uh, work that is worse or, or more or more overwhelming. Actually, we're going to be talking about impossible work. Work that was virtually impossible to do. And the penalty for not being able to do it was really, really bad, up to and including losing your life. So this is going to be an interesting story as we continue kind of reading this whole journey uh, of Moses and the children of Israel through the book of Exodus. So we're going to go to Exodus chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 6 in just a minute. Um, As I was thinking about this week, I was thinking about when I was a kid and I first discovered this thing called a cavity. I don't know if you guys have, have, can remember that moment when, it, when in your innocent childhood, you found out there was such a thing that could happen to your mouth and your teeth as a cavity. Yeah, right. This is trauma. This is like, wait, what? I did not agree to this. How could this be a real thing? Worse than that, I also found out in that moment while I was sitting in the dentist chair when he said the word cavity, and I was like, good thing or bad thing? Like, is that positive or negative? And he's talking to my mom about, yeah, we're going to have to drill. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Drill? What what is this? I don't understand, and I'm not, I am am definitely voting no on this thing. Um, Unfortunately, and I remember the office it was, it was on Gantown Road, right around the corner from where I lived, and uh, and the doctor and and the the people that were all there. I remember all of it because it was such a traumatic moment. And then they said to me, which I felt like was, in my, I was about eight, seven, eight years old. I felt like this was reprieve. Turned out it was not. They said, well, we're not going to do it today. We'll do, this was like Tuesday or Monday. We're going to do it Friday. So I was like, Phew. yeah, put the drill away. Let's go home. This is, let's think about this before we do anything, ra- you know, like crazy here. But what I found out is Friday, having it Friday just meant that between whenever I left the dentist chair, I just thought about it. What was this, this drill thing, you know, because I only knew about the kind of drill that, you know, dad used to, I, didn't, I, didn't, I was like, this is going to be bad, you know, this is going to be, I, I, and, my, and my parents seemed unconcerned. They seemed like, yeah, this is, yeah, we're going to go get your cat, and I'm, do you understand what he said? And how can this be a normal thing? At the time, If my mom and or my dad had come to me and said, now Mark, there's this thing in your mouth called a cavity and the dentist wants to drill it out, what do you think? What do you think I would have said? (laughs) Listen, everything's good. I feel good. Everything's fine. Let's not do any, you know, like anything that that you'll regret later on. Let's just leave it alone because I think it will be fine. They didn't ask me. They took me against my will to the dentist. And what turned out, I didn't realize this at the time, what turned out to be an additional like level of torture was my dentist advised my mom that it was a very small surface cavity and did not need Novocaine, which I didn't know what that meant. My mom thought that was a really good thing because she didn't have to pay for Novocaine. But it meant all during the process, I was sweating and in a panic, feeling whatever they were doing in my mouth, having no idea 
Are we just starting? Are we close to being done? And just totally freaking out. Now, decades later, I look back on that and I, and I understand that having something like that in your mouth is not something, while it's very scary to an eight-year-old, it was necessary to take care of the damage and the decay so that there were worse problems later on and much worse problems, infections and loss of a tooth and, and systemic infections and things that can happen that much more expensive, much more painful and possibly even much more dangerous. So I thought about that as I thought about what we're going to look at today in Exodus because I really believe Christians, even grown-up Christians, kind of see our lives the same way that I saw my life as an eight-year-old facing the dentist's drill. Like, this is bad. How could it be good? We, as believers, all tend towards this. It, as we grow in our faith, we are supposed to find reality and find depth and find faith and, and purpose that goes beyond this, but we all gravitate towards back towards this over and over again, which is we value comfort and ease far too much. It is in our instinct understanding an unassailable good, comfort and ease. Well, I'm comfortable. Why are you bothering me? I, it shouldn't be hard. It should be easy. We have too much faith in the known and the understandable. We have far too much faith in what we know and what we can understand. We think we know what is good based on what we see right now. And we are so confident, unreasonably confident in our judgment than we really have in our lives proven to be. We already know we don't see everything, but we kind of still act like we do, don't we? Even though we've seen over and over again how, wow, that turned out a way I never expected it to, still in the moment, we generally tend to believe that what we see is the whole picture. The story of Moses and Pharaoh picks up immediately after Moses' conversation with Pharaoh that we talked about last week. And Moses and Aaron had gone in and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh had said, get out of my face. Why are you stopping the people from working? They get back to work. Get back to work. And so this conversation comes right on the heels of that. Pharaoh's response in what we read today is to make things significantly worse for Israel. For things to get much worse harder. Israel believes that they know where this is going. And we'll see at the end of this passage that as they watch what unfolds here, they think they know what this all means and where this is all going. What they believe is that they are in danger for their very lives and they're not going to make it. That's what they believe. Pharaoh believes that he is in control of where this is going. That he is the one who will say how this will play out. He has all kinds of evidence about that, that Moses and Aaron came and asked him to let my people go, and he said no. So clearly, he's the one in charge. But what they all don't know, what they've all missed, is that God is still good. God is still in control, and God is still just about to change everything. The problem for them is that they can't see it. 
And because they can't see it, they don't feel it. And because they don't feel it, they've chosen to focus on what's happening instead of what they've heard from God. Instead of the character and the nature of God, they've chosen to look at what's going on in front of me right now and say, that's the story. I think, in the end, Israel was much happier with God's plan than theirs. I think their plan right now is, could we just leave well enough alone? Let's just go back to the where, where it was easier work. I mean, we were slaves, and if we were slaves for so long, we were crying out to the Lord and all that, but could we just forget about all that? Because now we've stirred the hornet's nest, and now could we just go back to where it was more comfortable and easier, more known, and more understandable? And God says, I'm not going there. I'm going to a much, much better place. And in the end, God's plan of deliverance and the promised land was much better. But the process of that plan made them feel like, oh no, let's just skip God's drill. Let's just opt out. We don't want it. It's uncomfortable. We don't see the point for it. We weren't really that bad off before. Can't we just go back to slightly better? So let's pick it up. Verse 6 of of Exodus chapter 5. That same day, so at the end of Moses' conversation, Moses and Aaron's conversation with Pharaoh, that same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and the overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers that they had appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? So we see that same day after Moses and Aaron meet with Pharaoh, they go in and they have, a, they have this conversation. Pharaoh, that same day, gives this order. And we see that this whole process that, that we're talking about today happens over a few days because at the end there you see, why haven't you met your quota yesterday or today? So we're talking about two days worth of this misery where the work got much, much harder. We'll talk about exactly what it is, this difference between straw and stubble and all of that stuff. But big point, the children of Israel had done exactly what wrong to be slaves. Sometimes when things are really bad in our lives, our first question is, what did I do wrong? Right? God must be mad at me. Well, what had the Israelites done wrong? This was not an instance where God was mad with his people. This was an instance where God was using pain and and unfairness and injustice for good purposes. But his people just experienced it like, what did we do wrong? We kind of have this understanding that when we do the right things, good things should happen. 
These folks had not done anything wrong that we know of, and they had been wronged for a long time. They cry out to the Lord, and God sends them Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron go in, and it's kind of like, all right, here we go. This is going to... And it does change, but not the way that they thought. Their lives turn incredibly worse with more pressure, more stress, harder work. And the big question is why? What is happening when this happens? Has this ever happened to you? Where you stepped forward into what you thought was right, or you were just trying to be faithful with what you thought was right, and the more that you did what was right, the worse it seemed to get. This is Israel's experience here. When you do what you think you should, but it doesn't make things better, or it actually makes things worse, it really is confusing. And the fact that we go through this so often is part of why we have the book of Exodus, part of why we have this story. Because this story and this book was originally written to people who had lived through this, people who had experienced this, people for whom this was their story. So we're not supposed to be reading this like a mystery novel, like a, a whodunit. Like, we don't know what's coming. We're supposed to be reading it, and the original audience was reading it like, we know what happens. So we're supposed to learn from this by taking what we know happens and applying it to this. Saying, do you see how wrong, how off we were as we experienced that and we wondered what is going on? We're supposed to learn how to look at our own story as we read this story. And so, we know that they wind up delivered. But we know that right now, that doesn't seem possible, and it certainly doesn't seem imminent. It doesn't seem like it's around the corner. So if we, if we start off this, this whole discussion with Pharaoh giving an order, he responds to Moses and Aaron's demand, let my people go, by making demands of his own. When two parties make demands, and one of them gets their way, and the other one doesn't get their way, who is in charge here? In our human understanding, the person who gets the say, the person who gets their way, that's the powerful one. That's the one in charge. That's the one who won that interaction. Logic would tell us that Pharaoh is stronger and has won the day. But logic would be wrong, wouldn't it? Because we know the end of the story. So sometimes when you go into these, these incidents in life and, and you think, well, that happened, so that must mean... Remember the lesson of this story, which is, it, just because it looks like that right now does not mean that's where this is going. Just because it looks like God is absent, or just because it looks like evil is winning, just because it looks like no one will do what is right, that's not the end of the story. We know where this story is going, right? And we need to be people of faith who hold on to the end. When we think like, well, what we see, what, what's in front of us, that's what's real. When we think like that, we fall prey to Satan's strategies. Do you know God has a plan for your life? Do you know that? God has a plan for your life. Do you know Satan has a strategy for your life as well? Let me, let me give you the short version. Satan's strategy for your life. He would like you to distrust the one who died for you. He would like you to believe that you will be forsaken and forgotten, that God will not come through for you, that there is no reason for you to have hope, that any security, any level of confidence in the one who gave his life, that's his strategy for you. 
His other strategy is that he, or his goal, is that he would love for you to live constantly in fear and miserable. Whose plan would you like to play out in your life? Satan would love for you to live constantly in fear and in misery. And he uses tactics, so many tactics to, to get us there. Two of them are here. Two of them, like first one, trials. He likes to take trials and use them to say to us, look at the way God cares for you. God said he would never leave you or forsake you. Now look at what he's done. Wow, wow, look at God. That's what Satan loves to do with trials. Because he wants you in fear, he wants you miserable, he wants you to distrust your Savior. And the other strategy that we see here is false accusation. Pharaoh says, the reason you're asking is because you're lazy. Now, that's not the reason they were asking. But that's the false accusation to them. A wounding accusation, a personal attack gets us off track. But what Pharaoh does at the the very last sentence, I think is so important for us to, to, to recognize. Because he says why he does this. Verse 9, make the work harder for the people so they keep on working and pay no attention to the lies. Now, what are the lies he's talking about? What are the lies? Pharaoh says, I don't want them to listen to the lies. What are the lies? It's Moses and Aaron coming saying, God is going to deliver you, right? So what Pharaoh says are lies are otherwise known as the word of God, the promises of God. And what he says is, if I can make the work harder, if I can pour out injustice and unfairness, if I can make this miserable for them, then they will pay no attention to the lies code for the truth, the promises of God, the hope that they've been given. In this one statement, Pharaoh exposes what all this mess is meant to do by our enemy. And he's not being dishonest for himself. He actually believes their lies because in that interaction, he won. God is not going to win. I'm going to win. Didn't you see what I just did? By the way, our world always sees God's words as lies. Always. So they will say, well, you're just being stupid. You're just being dumb. You're just listening to something that doesn't make any sense. God tells us to be forgiving and generous and kind and helpful. And the world likes how that sounds, but have you noticed they deeply believe it's a lie? That generosity and and kindness are values in and of themselves and that you can afford them. God gives us instruction on how to live sexually and the world throws that away as limiting and a forfeit of pleasure and self-expression. It's a lie. God tells us of a judgment that all men must face and mankind says, nah, that's not going to happen. Mankind always looks at God's words as lies. God tells us money and power are empty and the world says, no, they're not. That's what it's all about. We read over and over how Pharaoh's heart was hard towards God and this is why. Because he believes that God's words are lies. He believes that God is no one to trust no one to listen to, no one to take seriously. And that plays out in his response because his hard heart rushes to abuse and hurt those under his power. Pharaoh goes to that human way of control. If you are a human being and you want to do this in human way, you do it by, I have the power and I will make you. 
Too often, that is the way Christian homes run too. Too often, that is the way Christian churches run too. Too often, that is what believers put their hope in with our country. More power means we we have hope. The slavery of Israel was a way for Egypt to hold on to power. And now that Israel is asking to leave, he responds by turning up and showing more power. As a matter of fact, Pharaoh actually sees his power as an answer to God's demand. He's going to show God and God's people that he has the power and not God. As a matter of fact, when the guys go back and say, uh, verse 10, when the slave drivers and overseers go out and say to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, those words, this is what Pharaoh says, mimic exactly verse 1 when, when Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and say, this is what God says. He says, oh yeah? Well, this is what I say. It is a direct answer and you can almost feel the way that Pharaoh looks at this whole interaction. I am bigger than God. I don't have to listen to God. I want nothing to do with him. I will have my way by my power. Pharaoh's direction here will cost him wealth, will cost him his army, will cost him his son. But he doesn't see it right now. Right now, all he sees is that he can do whatever he wants to do. The problem for us and the lesson for us is not, well, you know, those unsaved people who all think God's thing is a lie. The problem is a lot of times we think like they do. We think and talk and act and pray like Pharaoh was right. That evil people get to do whatever they want and get away with it. Don't we? We, we let go of what we know is true based on what we see happening. What we know is true in this passage is it looked like that and felt like that and they could have given you 25 reasons off the top of their head why this was much, much worse. But they were in a much better position than they had been for hundreds of years because it was just a few short weeks when they were walking out of this country rich and free. They just didn't see it right now. And I'm saying to you, God has given us promises and the enemy stirs the pot and he says, pay no attention to the promises. Pay no attention to those lies. There's no reason to trust God. God has failed you. God has forgotten you. God has forsaken you. You've blown it too big. You've made too big of a mess. Don't trust God. Just settle for a little bit better. Settle for comfort. Settle for the known. Don't go forward trusting God's plan. Don't be passionate about what God wants to play out in your life. Just make do. Deliverance is coming for Israel. Pharaoh's words and Pharaoh's actions are not going to stop it, but it feels like the wrong direction. Pharaoh is betting that this display of human power will cause a response in Israel of giving up on their idea of following God. Satan is betting that his pressures in your life will cause you to give up on actually following God in any real and living way. That Pharaoh thinks they'll see my power and they're going to be intimidated and convinced that I'm in charge and you shouldn't listen to God. Satan wants you to think the same thing. So what did he do? He said to them, I'm not going to give you straw. 
You're going to have to go get it yourself. Now, he, what he actually wound up doing, and you can kind of see this as the story goes on, he actually didn't make the work harder. He made it almost impossible. Because straw was basically the stalks of vegetation that wasn't edible. It was just what the, you know, whatever the vegetation, the wheat or whatever grew on. It was the stalks. That had already been harvested. That had already been collected. So now he says to them, I'm not going to give you from that store. I'm not going to give you straw from that. You have to go. And it says they spread out all over the land to go get this stuff. So what they're doing is they're going back to where all that stuff was cut off the ground and they're going to what's left in the ground and they're pulling up from the ground stubble, the little stubs in the ground. So instead of having piles and piles of straw to make bricks, they have to go gather and pull this stuff out of the ground. And what they pull out of the ground is not nearly as much as what they were given because it can't possibly be because it's just these little stubbles in the ground. So day one comes and goes and they haven't met their quota of bricks and so the, the leaders get beaten Day two comes and goes, and they, they can't meet their quota, and they get beaten. And so the children of Israel do what you and I would do. They go to Pharaoh and say, wait a minute, there must be some mistake. Something uh, you must not understand. So well, follow along with me, verse 15. Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet are we told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy. That's what you are, lazy. This is why you keep saying, let us go up and sacrifice to the Lord. Now, get to work. You will be, not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you each day. They are in disbelief. They, they are just assumed that Moses and Aaron showing up with a message from God and with these signs about the hand and the snake, you know, certainly things are going to get better. I mean, we, we, if we have to wait a couple days or a couple weeks, okay, but they're going to get better. But they don't get better. They don't even stay the same. They are unprepared for what happens, which is for it to get significantly worse. And you and I have the same kind of like circuit breaker that goes like this. All right, I'm going to follow God, and, and if everything just stays status quo, I can, I can believe that better things are coming. But when things go worse, when things get hard, when things go chaotic, I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is not what is supposed to happen. This is not the way this is supposed to play out. We assume that doing what, right is, doing what is right is supposed to make our lives more comfortable, or at least more understandable. And when it does neither, we're like, something must be wrong. And we go to God and we say, God, you must have made a mistake. We have patience if we think something's soon going to be righted. But if it looks like it's going the wrong direction and we're doing the right thing, we're like, wait a minute, God, this is not the deal. And so the Israelites go to Pharaoh. The Israelite leaders go and say, hey, you may not understand. Except Pharaoh says, oh, no. I understand completely. I understand exactly. There's no misunderstanding here. This is the way it's going to be. And I can imagine while they're standing there talking to Pharaoh, they're thinking, Moses and Aaron, what have you done? Uh, you told us 
God was going to deliver us. You told us God was behind this. This does not look like God is behind it. Are there places in your life where you're like, this does not look like God is behind this? Why do you think that? Is it because things aren't working out the way you think they should? Is it because your life is not getting more comfortable, easier, more understandable? Or is it because there's something actually about God's work that's not happening there? Most of the time, our attention is on what we see and understand. There are probably lots of reasons why God would remain silent and do nothing. But when he does, we're like, God, have you failed? Have you forgotten? What's going on? I would say never underestimate God's ability to be at work in a way that will surprise you. Has God ever surprised you with what he's decided to do? Never saw it coming? Never imagined it? Never realized that was possible? Never knew how close you were to the end of something? Never knew how powerful God was going to be in the middle of it? Never underestimate, when, when all the questions are out there, never underestimate God's ability to be at work in a way that surprises you. Here, he's going to do things that they would have never asked or imagined to be real. You understand, God is about to do stuff in Egypt that wasn't part of their prayer. They were like, God, deliver us. God is about to pour out fire and ice from heaven, put boils on their cows, turn the river to blood, stuff they never imagined. It wasn't like Israel was like, God, if you could just send lice, please. Oh, some flies would be nice. Like, they did not have a menu of what God was going to do. They had no idea what God was going to do. And that is often how God is. It's not that you haven't prayed right. It's that God is going to say, you couldn't have even prayed it if you wanted to because you couldn't imagine what I'm going to do. And sometimes God leaves evil in this world so that it can be seen as the full evil it is. And I know this is hard, but remember what God has promised is that there is coming a day when he will judge, when he will set all things right, and he will separate what is good from what is bad. No one really gets away with it. But there are times, just like this, where God allows evil to show itself, and it needs to be shown so that all but the most rebellious among us see God's goodness and see evil for what it is. And sometimes that means in my life it's going to be hard for a little bit. Sometimes that means it's going to be painful. But if God is exposing evil and God thinks that's good, we can trust him. We can trust him even when evil seems to succeed. Now they walk out of there and they bump into two people that have been on their minds, Moses and Aaron. Verse 20 and 21. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, May the Lord look on you to judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. These are not people filled with hope. These are people who are bitter. People who are convinced that God did not speak to Moses and Aaron. And if he did, God did not mean what he said. The words that they say here tell us where their minds are. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. The Israelites were told God's going to deliver you. Now they believe they're going to die before he does. 
God, I'm not going to make it. Have those words come out of your mouth? God, I don't know if I can make it. They saw a bigger danger from Pharaoh than they had ever seen before. And as they thought through how they were going to make it, even through the next day, it seemed to them that their very lives were at risk. It did not seem that they were moving quickly towards deliverance. It felt like they were moving quickly towards the end and their destruction. And that's where we end today before Moses goes to God next week and asks, what's the deal? I also want to take a quick look, though, at Moses and Aaron. They did what the Lord had asked, and now they're getting a, you know, feedback from people that they're going to deliver that's not so pleasant and nice. What had they done wrong? They did exactly what God asked them to do, and now they're the villain. Sometimes that's where you wind up in the middle of this. And Moses had been in that position before, hasn't he? Last time he was in that position, he ran away for 40 years. What's he going to do now? God's giving him another opportunity. What are you going to do now? There's no doubt the Israelites face a reality that we face often. They expected good. They expected resolution. They expected deliverance. They had been promised it, and they thought, man, Moses and Aaron going to Pharaoh, that's the first step. And it was the first step. But when they looked at it from a human perspective, it seemed like a step in the wrong direction. They heard Pharaoh's words, they experienced the beatings, the threats, and they were convinced that Moses and Aaron had hurt their case and they let go of the promise of God. Instead, they embraced what seemed like it was true because it was what they were experiencing. We are supposed to know that in a few short weeks, they walk out free and rich. So what do we learn from this? Here's what I think we learned from this. And I'm going to close this morning with just reading to you some verses from Psalm 33. What we learned from this is this. When we trust the Lord, God asks us to trust Him in the process as much as in the product. Don't lose track of this because this is a very big key to your development, your growth, your maturity as a Christian. When God asks you to trust the Lord, He doesn't say, now trust me when we get to the finish line. It's great to get to the finish line. But He doesn't say, trust me when we get there. He says, trust me that we're going there. And trust happens to show up because the process doesn't always look like we're going to get there. The road to where God is going in our hearts, the good plans that God has for us, doesn't always look like progress. So if you're discouraged about where things stand, if it's making you think that God needs to start, let's go. You're probably in the process. You're probably in that spot that the Israelites are. You're not right now able to see how God is going to do what needs to be done. And I will say to you, if you don't trust Him in the process, you won't trust Him in the product either. When you get to the finish line, if you struggle to trust Him in the process, you are still going to struggle to trust Him when it's all said and done. How do I know that? Well, think about the Israelites. They, this, this struggle, God, how could you be good? Our lives are uncomfortable, shows up over and over and over again in the rest of the story. Why? Because God keeps confronting them with, will you trust me in the process? Not just when you see it, but that I promise that it's coming. Will you trust my promises? 
Even when they walk out of the land, even when they walk into the promised land, they are still just one bad day away from thinking it was a mistake to trust God. They complain, they rebel, they judge God's actions, they judge God's motives. Why, oh why, oh why? And so here what you see is God is patiently trying to teach them what they need to know after he delivered them. People of God, God's works rarely produce immediate results. God's work in your life rarely produces immediate results because God is trying to build what is necessary in you, which is faith, not sight. He's trying to build your faith. He's trying for, to let you hold on to the fact that God is a faithful God. That God is a God who keeps his promises. And I pray that you and I will hold on to that because that is our birthright and that is what God is doing in our lives right now. I want to close this morning and then we'll pray and and be on our way. But I, I want to, as I kind of like say, let's take this into life. I want to read Psalm 33 from 16 down to the end of the chapter. And I just want you to listen to this song, this poem about this topic. And it says this, No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death, and keep them alive in famine. And so, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In Him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in His holy name. And so, may your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in You. I pray we'll do that. Let's pray. Father, right now, In this place, in this room, many of us are in a spot where you are asking us to trust you like we never have before. As we read your word, as we hear the story from the children of Israel, we are being called to a trust that holds on, a trust that endures, a trust that builds passion in us for a connection with you. And we have a choice to turn back to Pharaoh's way of thinking to Israel's way of thinking or to step forward into this faith that can bring hope and peace, strength and joy to our lives. Teach us, Father, not just from your word in in this morning, but in our lives as we walk out, take your word and apply it to us so that we would be people whose trust in our God is unshakable because our God is unshakable. I pray, Father, you will do this in the heart of your people. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.